Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, there we go today, thanks. Matthew 5, we continue uh, walking through um, the Sermon on the Mount. We come today to um, finish uh, a passage we started last week. We didn't get too far last week, but we'll try to, one way or another, we're going to finish it this week. Uh, so buckle up and hold on. This is one of the uh, perhaps uh, most controversial and discussed passages in all of Scripture, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's something that we must understand if we're going to understand the rest of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and verse 20 we could describe as the thesis of Jesus' um, sermon. So let me read those verses for us, and, and we will uh, dive in. Verse 17, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That seems to be the thesis of Jesus' sermon because he's going to go on in the rest of chapter 5 and, and describe what this exceeding righteousness looks like. So today as we walk through these verses, we want to look at um, uh, just three requirements uh, that we need to understand about life in the kingdom of heaven. First of all, it's all about Jesus. Secondly, it requires radical obedience. And third, it requires an exceeding righteousness. He's going to say that Christ's followers teach and do what Jesus teaches and what Jesus does. And, and when they do that, when they do and teach what Jesus does and teaches, they are, they are thereby fulfilling what the law has reveal, revealed in Christ. That is... Life in the kingdom and, and entry into the kingdom requires an exceeding righteousness. So true followers of Christ, they follow tri Christ truly through obedience to his teachings. So let's look at those three things. You know, the passage can be divided easily into uh, verses 17 and 18, Christ and the law, and then verses 19 and 20, Christians and the law. Uh, we see that with the, the word therefore in verse 19. He, he's really talking about uh, two, one thing, the, the kingdom of God, but he talks about the, the foundation for that kingdom in verses 17 and 18 and verse 19 and 20, our responsibility uh, in that kingdom. So we're going to start just with a bit of, bit of review. We got through verse 17 last week, but we didn't quite get through 18, so we're going to review those two verses together and spend most of our time on verses 19 and 20 this week. So uh, first of all, Christ and the law. 
the kingdom requires the supremacy of Christ. And what do we mean by that? We mean that Jesus comes here and he begins to um, describe something and begins to frame a conversation that he's about to have. And he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. Jesus is going to say that everything in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the scripture points to me. I fulfill everything that you read. There, we talk about two ways of reading the Old Testament or, or the Bible. One is you can read the story for its moral, um, moral lesson, and that's really not the best way to read the Bible. It's not really a good way to read the Bible. Or you can read it in light of the story of Christ, in the light of the story of salvation, and when we do that, when we read the Old Testament in the light of Christ, we see him throughout the Old Testament. Christ begins his sermon, and we've seen this with, with the, the Beatitudes as the introduction to the sermon. And he, he talks about Beatitude people, and he says, Christ, God has made you a certain kind of people. You are, a, a group, you are in a group called the blessed. You are the blessed people. Why? Because God has worked in your life through his spirit, and he has, he has uh, brought you to a point where you realize several things about yourself. You realize that you are bankrupt in your spirit. You are poor in spirit. That there, is, there are not enough candles in the world to light. There's not enough alms that you can give. There's not enough money that you can put in the offering plate to take one step toward God. You are totally bankrupt before God. And when we realize that and we see a holy God and we see how sinful we are and how small we are, as Josh talked about, uh, it brings into our lives a mourning, a mourning over sin before a, before a holy God. And that mourning leads to repentance. And in our repentance, it brings in a meekness. We bow before God in, in meekness because of his holiness and because of our sins. And when we do that, it creates in us a, right, a hunger and a thirst to obey, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, to do what is right. And those are, that's the kind of person God has made each one in this room if you are trusting Christ as your Savior. And when we get to that point, um, it's, it says, blessed then are the merciful, because we understand the mercy of God in our lives, we are able to show that mercy of God to others and we become pure in heart, meaning that we have blinders on and our focus is only Christ. We will one thing and what we will is Christ. And then he leads us to being peacemakers because God has made peace with us. We want to make peace with others, and we also want to make peace, peace between men and God. And that's why he, he ends Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, as you're going into the world, make disciples, teaching them all the things that I have commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the earth. We want to be peacemakers between men and God. And we do all of that, and we, we, God makes us that person, and he says in the last a beatitude, um, you will be persecuted. You will be blessed. You will be persecuted. Why? Because everything that you are and everything that you do is so countercultural to our world. You will be persecuted. 
And if we could take all of those links and we connect persecution back to, back to poor in spirit, it is a way to help us when we fail to remind ourselves who God has made us. He has made us poor in spirit. He has made us mourn. He has, he has, he has made us meek before himself. We are bankrupt, we are broken, and we are bent before God. He starts out with that, who we are, and, and then he talks about how we live. How we live comes from who we are, and we, we can't get the cart in front of the horse. He says, if you are these people, you will be salt and light. You will rub salt into the rotting fish of the world to, to delay the decay. How do you do that? As simple as, as not being involved in the, the dirty jokes around the water cooler at, at work or, um, or uh, volunteering for a verity ministry and counseling uh, pregnant, young pregnant um, unwed mothers and, and fathers. We, we impact our society by how we live, but he says also you'll be, you will be light. You will be light because you will share the gospel by your good works, by how you live and by what you say. And so we have influence on a world that is dying. And then he comes to 17 and 18, and he says the foundation for all of this is the word of God. And Jesus comes to this, and, and he's going to say, everything in Scripture points to me. I am the story of the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. Don't think I've come to get rid of them. I've not. I love the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Because the Old Testament speaks of and points to Jesus. Jesus is the story of the Old Testament. He is the, the Passover lamb of, of Exodus. He's the son of David of, of Samuel. He's the prince of peace and the, the king of kings. He's the sacrificial son of Isaiah. He will say some shocking things coming up here, but he needs to establish this, that he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He goes on and he says, I have not come to abolish but to fulfill, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, the Old Testament is fulfilled in me. It points to me, meaning I am the promised Messiah. How do I know that? Because um, he's going to say in verse 18, these are the proofs that I am who I say that I am. And in verse 18, he, he, he talks about Scripture and the authority of Scripture and how Scripture validates who he is. He's not come to abolish, but it still remains in effect. He, I haven't come to do away with it, but I've come to fulfill it in an even greater way. You know, we don't separate the Old Testament and the New Testament as you know, this was law and, and this is grace. There was grace in the law and there is law in, in grace. Three proofs he gives us in, in verse 18. He says this, he begins in verse 18, for truly I say unto you. That's actually the word amen. Amen, I say to you. This is, this is something that only Jesus used and when he uses the the, the Greek word for amen, it, it raises the importance and the authority of what he's about to say. No other teacher in Scripture used this formula. 
He says, in other words, I can assure you on the authority of who I am, on the authority of who I am, I can assure you that I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he gives three proofs. He says, first of all, it is, I am, I am the fulfillment of the law. In verse 18, he says, not an, not an iota or dot will pass from the law. He doesn't say a law or, or some law or uh, a law we don't know about, but it, it's, there's a definite article. It is the law. And when, when the disciples and the Jews and the scribes and Pharisees, whoever was around him in this teaching, they understood what that meant. They understood that this is God's law, that God is the author of the law, that God spoke through Moses to give the law, that God spoke through the prophets to call people back to the law, that this is the, the word of God. That would be unquestioned in, in this group, that, that this is God's law, and God cannot lie. Therefore, this is a true law. But he also says that more than that. He says that this is not only true because it's God's uh, law, it is true because not a dot, not an iota or a dot will pass from this law until all is accomplished. It is true to the very words on the uh, papyra uh, or on the scroll. Every, every letter of this is true. We get the, um, if we talk about the doctrine of the Bible, we use words like verbal and plenary inspiration. And what we mean by that is that, that Scripture is true to the very words, not dictated words, but they express the very ideas that God expresses. Not only that, but all of those words together are inspired words not only every letter, but the entirety of Scripture is true. And he says, not even the, the iota or, or dot will pass away. Some of you in the old, we memorize this, the jot and the tittle. Um, the, the iota or the iota, some of you Greek scholars might want to use that pronunciation, but it's the smallest letter of the, the Greek alphabet, and I forget some of the Greek rules, but uh, sometimes it's used as a little subscript under another letter that looks kind of like an N, which is a, an A, but there's a, a little subscript I or an iota under there. And he's saying, not even that small letter, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet or, or the jod, I think the yod, Josh would have to help me on that, the, the yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not even the smallest letter or the tittle. Now, what's a tittle? We don't know what a tittle is. So I think our, our word for it, technical word, is seraph. It's, it's the smallest, smallest line that you can make. It's the difference between a C and a G. It's the difference between an O and a Q. I think the, the NIV actually says, um, not even the, how, how does that say, not even the least stroke of the pen, the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will pass away until all is accomplished. It is true. This is true, and it is, it is true to the letters written on the pages, and it is true. Um, it is a permanent word. It will not pass away till all is accomplished. He says, 
that until heaven and earth passes away, there is a time when heaven and earth will pass away, but this word will not pass away until heaven and earth passes away. And when heaven and earth passes away, that means all is accomplished. And when all is accomplished, that's when heaven and earth is going to pass away. And he's saying this is permanent. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. There is a day when heaven and earth will pass away, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the written word will pass away. Why? He goes on and says, but my words will not pass away. Because the words of Christ, the fulfillment of everything that is in the written word, will be with us face to face. And the law will be written on our hearts. And there will be no longer a need for the, the written word, but the words of Christ will never pass away. So what does that mean? It means that if, if the words point to Jesus, and these words are, are spoken by God, and this is true to the smallest detail, and this word endures, the question is, how do we live in light of this word? And that's where verse 19, the therefore, comes in. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, to, teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying the old endures. But there is something new that has come. That Jesus has come to bring in the kingdom, not a political kingdom, not what they had expected, but a kingdom of the heart, an internal kingdom, the reign of God in your life. One day there will be a physical reign of God on the new heavens and new earth, and we will reign with him. But until now, the question is, how do we live? And that brings us to the Christian and the law. The kingdom requires radical obedience. I think what Jesus is saying here is that if you follow me, you need to really, you need to really follow me. Jesus' logic is, is so practical. If he is the story of the Old Testament, and if the Old Testament is true and is realized in Christ... What happens to these people sitting around listening to his teaching? These Jewish people, uh, we could say today, what happens to us? And what happens to, to unbelievers when they realize that this is true? Well, when that happens, our worldview changes. Our thinking changes. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our behaviors change. Morality changes. How we live changes. See, following the Torah and the prophets now means following Jesus. That we obey Jesus and teach what Jesus teaches. And he says, if you, if you relax the least of one of these commandments, and um, I, you know, I'm thinking, they're probably thinking, you know, the commandments as they were written. I, th I think what Jesus is, is thinking here is the commandments as I'm about to reveal them to you, the, the, the true meaning of these commandments. 
that the law and the prophets, as, as Jesus defines the law and the prophets, that these, these commandments are not to be relaxed. Some translations say not to be uh, set aside, but they are to be obeyed. Well, I think so far, the scribes and the Pharisees are probably tracking a little bit with Jesus. They may not understand what he means totally by, I've come to fulfill these laws, but, but, but they're glad he's not come to do away with it. Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm not some sect. I'm not teaching something new. I'm explaining to you what you should believe. So what does it mean to be the least or great in the kingdom of heaven? Does that mean, you know, we all just kind of, kind of get in there, um, different, two different levels of kingdom citizenship, perhaps? Um, do both least and great get in? Well, I think there can be a good argument, even in Matthew, uh, that that is true. It's Matthew 18, uh, verse 4. Uh, well, even before that, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 20, something similar in verse 16, he says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Verse 21, um, this is the mother of sons of Zebedee, asking which of her sons um, will be on Jesus' right or left, which would be the greatest? And he said to her, what do you mean? She said, say to these two sons of mine are, are to sit, one on your right hand and one in your left hand, positions of authority and honor. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And he said, they said to him, we are. He said to them, you will drink the cup. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. He goes on in verse 26, and he says, it shall, be, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So there seems to be some sort of lesser, greater um, kind of, Thing going on here, even in, with the commandments, uh, Matthew goes on in Matthew chapter 22 talking about the commandments. In verse 34, the Pharisees heard that he had been silenced. He had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. One of them asked him uh, to test him, which is the greatest commandment. And he said to him, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the greatest of the first commandments. There is some idea of greater and lesser in commandments and greater and lesser in, in reward. So I was reading this, I thought, so is it possible to disobey the least commandments if there are least commandments? And we, we might say, you know, murder is a greater commandment than uh, not giving your offering for uh, a period of time. Maybe that would be a, a lesser commandment. Is it still possible to put those aside 
and still get in? Would it just be less respect or less honor or less reward, but at least you get in? You know, I kind of hope that's what it is. I think a lot of us hope that. So if you don't obey them all, at least you get in. You might be less rewarded, perhaps less honored, less responsible position, but you're in the kingdom. But how does that mesh with take up your cross and follow me? How does that mesh with the radical obedience? How does that mesh with James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable to all of it. Is that what Jesus wants us to pursue? When we think of Christ dying on the cross and, and dying for us and bleeding and, and being raised from the dead, does he want us to pursue a get in the kingdom by the skin of your teeth? It is possible that that's what it means. But perhaps there's something else, because verse 20 seems to explain this. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is an emphatic. You will absolutely never enter the kingdom of heaven. Could he be talking about, in verse 18, the appearance of being in heaven? In chapter 8, verse 11, he says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that the sons of the kingdom, referring to the Jewish people, is it possible to appear to be in the kingdom, but not truly in the kingdom? When you think of chapter 7, verse 21, if you think of anyone who should be in the kingdom, it, it sounds like these guys. Not everyone who says me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Some theologians think Jesus is using perhaps a uh, typical Hebrew contrasting here that those who enter the kingdom are the doers. And those who do not enter the kingdom are the non-doers. In other words, the least in the kingdom is a way of saying suffering eternal punishment. It is a, perhaps a play on words of relaxing the least of these commands. Now, I don't know which one of those is true. But I think we have to consider that that being least in the kingdom of heaven is not a reference to getting in by the skin of your teeth, but rather a style of writing to say that one does not get in, which five, or verse 20 seems to, seems to indicate. 
Verse 20 talks about a true and a, a greater righteousness. He doesn't say that greater righteousness is just for the, you know, the, the robo-Christian, the super spiritual Christian. But this is something that's for everyone. If this is true, what is he saying here? I think he's saying this, that following Jesus means really following Jesus. It doesn't mean relaxing or putting aside certain commands. It means radical obedience to the words of Christ. And it matters for eternity. He says, you do these things and you teach these things. You know, teaching, this could even be a worst, uh, worst part of this. You know, when you don't do them, you set them aside, it affects only you. When, you. when you teach others to set them aside, you are influencing the eternity of many people. Maybe that's why James said not many should be teachers because the punishment will be greater. But you teach. How do you teach? You teach by, by words. Josh taught a class this morning by words and uh, did a great job, by the way. But you also teach by your actions, don't you? So if we know that husbands are to love our wives and we teach that by our words, how does that play out in our homes? How's the sacrificial living going in our homes? If we teach righteousness of life, how's that working for us in our work? Or how's that working for our kids in school and um, taking an exam and perhaps being able to see the answers to your neighbor across the, across the aisle. We're teaching in those actions, aren't we? When our kids see how we relate at home, we are teaching, not by our words, but by our actions. Christian life, the life in the kingdom, requires radical obedience. We come to verse 20. The Christian in the law, the kingdom requires exceeding righteousness. So really following Jesus requires a, we could call it a beatitude righteousness, an exceeding righteousness. What is he talking about? If what Jesus just said is not so clear to us or maybe a little confusing, he's going to explain it by comparing the disciples to the existing uh, religious groups in Judaism, to the scribes and the Pharisees, that if their righteousness does not surpass that of the teachers of the law, the scribes, and it doesn't surpass the doers of the law, who are the Pharisees, then they will never, ever get in the kingdom. Now that is, that is the hammer that comes down. He has prepared them for this, and he's going to go on and explain what this means in, in the rest of the passage. What righteousness is he talking about? And it's easy for us at this point uh, to take away the difficulty of this passage, to take away the uh, convicting words of this passage by saying that Jesus was thinking about trusting the righteousness of Christ, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were trusting their own righteousness. 
But Jesus is not talking about the legal righteousness that we have in Christ or the forensic righteousness that it's sometimes called, that we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. He is talking about a righteous living, a righteousness that is, that is done, a lifestyle, our, our morality. We could call it our, our ethics, how we live. We could define that righteousness as whatever conforms to the character of God. That we are to live lives that are conformed to who God is and what God does. He's talking about our behavior. He's talking about, um, about our character. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you want to become, if you want to, to have that righteousness, then the righteousness that you seek and that God requires has nothing at all to do with the scribes and the Pharisees. It has nothing to do with them, not at all. He actually gives two examples of righteousness before this sermon. One is in chapter 1, verse 19, and, and, it, and it's Joseph. Chapter 1, verse 19 um, says this, and her husband, Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just man, same word, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is before the angel appeared to uh, Joseph, and Joseph decides to put her away quietly. Why? So that she would not be condemned, so that she would not be shamed or, or, or worse. So he decides to break things off quietly so that she will be able to live a normal life. The righteousness is right action that shows God's character. And here it's not just justice, but it's mercy. Joseph is, is commended for his mercy and for his grace. He also uses the example of Jesus in his, in his baptism, chapter 3, uh, verse Verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, but Jesus answered, let it be so now, speaking to, to John the Baptist, for, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is obeying his Father. And so baptism was an act of, of righteousness in obedience to what God wanted him to do, to God's will. There's an integrity there's a, a way of being in the world that Jesus calls righteousness. And to have that righteousness, you must do and teach the commands of Jesus. To be part of that kingdom, you must do and teach the commands and words of Jesus. The scribes were teachers of the law. They were the seminary professors. Our seminary professors are not like these scribes. I would just make that statement. They were highly academic, formally trained. Ours are like that. They were part of the Jewish academy. The Pharisees were the law keepers. They, were, they would go overboard with their religion, their religiosity. And these two groups are the giants of the day. These are the spiritual giants. Everyone looked up to these guys. They were the most righteous people in Israel. Imagine Jesus saying these words. This is a shocking statement about what true righteousness 
looks like. It's got to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when the disciples hear this and others around, there, there had to be good news and bad news here, I, I think. The bad news is that, that these scribes and Pharisees, they're the, they're the untouchables. They are the righteous untouchables, far superior in righteousness than the average person. These are the, the robo-righteous. These are, they just do righteous things uh, all the time. And you've got to be thinking, who can do this? Who can be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Well, the good news is that this is not about quantity of obedience. This is a different kind of righteousness, not a, not a quantity. John Stott says it this way, it's not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. That is what God is looking for. Their righteousness was show. It was external. Um, it, was, it was chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Don't preach a sermon to be seen by others. Don't do an act to be seen by others. Do the right thing, but do it to God. These people are thinking, all, all God wants is, you know, if we can just be righteous on the outside, you know, God's looking at how we fulfill these things. It's a, you know, fake it until you make it kind of religion. And what did he say? In chapter 23, he's, he talks to those, he talks to those uh, Pharisees, and he says, for they preach but do not practice. In verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, woe, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 23, woe to scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25, woe, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. The question is, how can our righteousness and character exceed the most outwardly righteous people? And the answer is simple. By a deep, obedient righteousness. Stop placing emphasis on, on how we appear or what others think about us and put it on who we are. He drives us right back to the Beatitudes that control the heart and you control your action. Be who God has made you. You're poor in spirit. You're mourning. You are meek before God. You're hungry and thirst after righteousness. And if everything is about what we do, it is so easy to become a hypocrite. Not more obedience, but deeper, deeper obedience. And he's going to explain that in the coming pages. Two things stick out to me, two themes stick out to me um, in this passage. One is the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. 
Why do people want to be so careful in defining sin? I mean, if you think about it, what we do, we, we draw a line in the sand, and that line is sin. And I just can't cross that line. If I cross that line, that's a bad thing. And so what is our nature? We see how close we can get to that line without going over it. That is the letter of the law. We should draw that line. Chapter 5 is all about the, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. We should draw that line not to see how close we can get to it, but how far away we can get from it. Amen. That is what Jesus is saying about the righteousness. We need to see the danger and stay away from it. That's what's going on here. Jesus is bringing us back to the original intent of the law and prophets, or, or perhaps we, he is explaining his, um, his view of the law and the prophets. But the Pharisees narrowed the law. They made it so Sabbath was no longer a time of, of getting away from your work to concentrate on what's important in life, but it was a day where you couldn't walk more than three-quarters of a mile, or you couldn't carry a certain amount of weight, or you, you couldn't do this or that. It became about doing rather than about being. And Jesus is saying, you need to be. And the other thing I see in this, and we'll close with this, is that this is all about the supremacy of Christ. That either he is so, he's an egotistical maniac, and saying, all this points to me, it's all about me. Or he is supreme over all. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the law is fulfilled in me. He not only differs from the scribes and the Pharisees, but he, he moves be, or, or the, um, the law and the, and, and the prophets, he moves beyond them. And so we finish where we started this morning. In Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is supreme, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God, the uncreated one, we sang about him. The author of salvation wrote the laws of space and time, fashioned worlds to his design, the one whom angel hosts revere hung stars like chandeliers, numbered every grain of sand, knows the heart of every man. He is king forever, king forevermore. Do you know that king? And if you do, how do you define your relationship with him? How do you define your spirituality? Is it getting close to the line? Or is it running far away from the line? You know, we read these words and we think they're, they're so convicting, but I want you to see the hope in these. We read these words and we think of the already but the not yet. We read these words and we say, I'm not there. That's the not yet or the already. 
but there will come a day and it's like reaching for something that you can't quite, can't quite grasp. It's like prayer. God answers prayer. Do we really grasp that? We begin to grasp it when we see God answering prayer and we understand that and we grow in our understanding of prayer. And it's the same in our righteousness. We grow. As we fail, we go back to the Beatitudes and we are reminded of who we are. And we grow and we get a little further away from the line. There's coming a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And we will be the people we are becoming. One man has put it this way, that there are only two kinds of men and women. The righteous who think they are sinners and the sinners who think they are righteous. Let's pray together.